So this story takes us back to when Rabbi Dov Bir, the son of the Alter Rebbe, was a very young man, and he had one child. And as was very, very common in those days, the people would live, even after their marriage, in their parents' home. They would cut off, you know, one floor or one section. You know, you live, uh, no one had a lot of money, so you just, you know, make an extra addition to the house, and the young couple would live there. So Rabbi Dov Bear was actually living on the bottom floor of a two-story house from his father. And the story goes that uh, one night, Rabbi Dov Bear was learning Torah through the night. And his father, on top of him, was also learning Torah. Unbeknown to each other, they're just very late at night, they're learning Torah. And next to Rabbi Dov Bear, the Mittler Rebbe, as he's known, the Alter Rebbe's son, was his newborn child of just a few months, and was sleeping soundly in the crib. And Rabbi Dober was learning Torah, and he got so involved that what happened was the child fell out of the crib and obviously started wailing. And his father, who was right next to him, didn't hear. And he continued learning. But the grandfather, the altar rabbi, was upstairs, a whole flight up. He did hear the cry of the child. And he came down the steps. He walked into the house of his son. He saw that the child was on the floor, and the father was so engrossed. And he was learning, he didn't notice. He picked up the child, calmed the child down, and then he tapped the son on the shoulder, you know, got his attention. And he said, you know, your child's on the floor, your child was crying. And obviously the father felt so bad. He said, I didn't realize I was so engrossed in my learning. To which the Alter Rebbe, his father, answered him and said, when a child is crying, no matter the depths of your spiritual elation, no matter the depths of your learning, you must always hear the cry of a child in need. So the Rebbe actually learned out from the story a very famous lesson that we should never put our own spiritual advancement above the needs of any child, whether that be a child by age or a child by stage. Whether it be a person, a child who's, who's, who's innocently needs someone to take care of them, they can't take care of themselves, or it means someone who spiritually is a child. They're not so advanced, they need someone to hold their hand and there are spiritual advancements, and you should never have your own spiritual advancements take precedence over helping someone else. That's how the Rebbe explains the lesson from the story. But I use this, but I use this as an opening for this class because this gives us a little bit of an opening to the essence of the soul and the relationship between the soul and its maker, Hashem. Because both the Jewish soul and Torah, they both come from Hashem. But the big difference between them is that the Jewish soul comes from the essence of Hashem and Torah comes from the wisdom of Hashem. Okay? And the soul of the person comes from much higher. So this story gives us a little bit of a glimpse that not only should you not be so involved in your learning that you won't hear the cry of a child, but you should realize that the cry of a child, the Jewish soul, actually takes precedence, is more important, and actually is sourced higher than your learning Torah. So before we get into the actual chapter, a word to define. I have one word this time. The word to define is um, filial. Does anybody know what filial means? Filial. F-I-L-I-A-L. Right? Family. Okay, very good. 
filial is the unique relationship between a child and their parent, a daughter, the parent, the son to the parent, or the parents to the child, that unique relationship. And this relationship defines the relationship between the soul and its maker and Hashem. Not that the soul is a son of Hashem as an analogy, but as the most accurate description. Okay? So, let, 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 let me explain to you what I'm saying. We've just come from the opening of the Tanya. The Tanya is on a quest. Quickly, for just two lines to, to bring us up to date here. The Tanya is on a quest. It wants to know, please define for me the real definition of the word Bainani. Bainani is a type of Jew, and we are seeking the definition of this type of Jew. Why are we so obsessed with the Bainani? Because the Bainani is going to be that Jew which is, an, which is your ideal state of being. The average person, the ideal state of being is to be the Bainani. In order to describe what a Bainani is, so the Tanya says, let me first describe to you what a Rasha and a Tzaddik is. Very familiar terms, Rasha and Tzaddik. The wicked person and the righteous person. And as we describe that a Rasha and a Tzaddik are on a parameter, where one extreme is a Tzaddik and we describe two types of Tzaddiks. On the other side is a Rasha, we describe two types of Rasha, they're on this parameter, and smack in the middle is the Benini. And now we have to explain what this parameter is and how the Benini is found in the middle. So what did we open up? We opened up with a, with a saying from Kabbalah that this is sourced from the Arizal, the foremost teacher of Kabbalah, that every single Jewish person has two souls, the animal soul and the godly soul. And we described last week a little bit about the animal soul. How the animal soul is your natural disposition. Not, not necessarily evil. Your natural disposition. Your natural tendencies. Your natural, uh, your natural state of, of being until you superimpose something on it. And it, it, that, that means that it could be evil or it could be just selfish. Just, or it could be just survival. Even survival comes from the Nefesh of Bahamas. Your natural tendency as a human being. But then every single person is gifted with a godly soul as well. A separate soul, a godly soul. And this godly soul is going to be the subject of the next few chapters. Chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5. The next four chapters, the subject of the godly soul. And we are going to describe three components of this godly soul. Chapter 2 is going to be the essence of the soul. Chapter 3 is going to talk about the build of the soul. And chapter 4 and 5 is going to talk about the garments of the soul. So over the next four chapters, we're going to learn about the godly soul. So this chapter, chapter 2, is about the essence of the soul. What is it in its essence? And when we describe what is in its essence, essentially, we want to know what its source is, where it comes from. Then we'll discuss the build, because it actually has a biology to it, a spiritual biology. And then we'll discuss the garments, which are the behaviors, how the soul behaves in thought, speech, and action, the three general behaviors. So this um, chapter is about the... Is about the essence of the soul. So if you look inside your text, the first text, it says like this, and this is actually the opening of the second chapter of Tanya. And the second soul of the Jew, is a piece of God, quite literally. So firstly, you should note that means the second soul. Why is the godly soul called the second soul? If I told you you have two souls, one's an animal soul, animalistic tendencies, and one's a godly soul, which one's first? 
which one is, 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 is first? You would say the, more, the one that's more important, the godly soul. The one that's higher level, that should be first. Why are we call him the godly soul second? Because it actually gives you an, in, an indication, it actually indicates um, how the, the human being actually absorbs these two souls. You should, rec- you should realize that the animal soul is much closer to the body. It's much more felt by the body. And the godly soul is much more concealed from the body. Now, even in, in, even in its, even in, in its um, even how the timeline, how the godly soul and animal soul come into the person, you should know that the animal soul is there from the beginning, but the godly soul doesn't infest itself, doesn't invest itself completely from the beginning. When it's in the mother's womb, the child gets a bit of the godly soul, and when it's born, it gets a little more. 30 days into its life, a little more. By the bris for a boy, it gets a little more. And then only fully by the bas mitzvah or bar mitzvah does the godly soul manifest completely. Okay, and that's what that's actual an actual definitive explanation of a bar mitzvah, a bas mitzvah, where the godly soul is completely manifest. So you should realize that the godly soul actually is late to the game. The animal soul, which vitalizes the body, is is uh, is there earlier on, and you can see that with the child, as we described, right? The child is inherently very selfish. It takes time for the child to mature. That maturity is actually due to the godly soul investing a little bit. The very fact that the child will 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 learn to share. And then the 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 and then the, the revelation of a higher cause or long term versus short term gain all these things which are beyond just the selfish um, makeup of the, of the child that takes time for the child to to uh, you know to, to absorb four years old eight years old right and then fully by thirteen years old or twelve years old that we ex- we're, ex- we're expecting and that's usually the case that they fully have the capacity to go beyond their selfish their selfishness. But the idea is that the animal soul in, in, it invests in the person first and the godly soul comes after. The best visual I could give you, I could give you for this is a hand in a glove or a hand in a, in a catcher's mitt in, in baseball. That's the best visual I could give you. It's not like you have two souls inside which are on equal footing and they're against each other and they're trying to conquer the body as we described and we'll describe in chapter, chapter 9. No, it's the animal soul is like the glove. And the bod and, and the godly soul fits into the animal soul, invests inside of it. And so therefore the animal soul is invested in the body, the godly soul into the animal soul. Okay, so really the first soul, the soul that's much more in touch with you, which you're much, you're more, much more in touch with, is the animal soul. That's what vitalizes you. That's who, that's who you identify with on a, on a day-to-day basis. The godly soul is something which is a lot more deeper um, um, invested. It's deeper, it's more concealed, and you have to work harder to reveal it. Yeah, you had a question. No, they're all five, all five. All, all parts of the zone. When you're acting like a child. When you act like you have it's Okay? Meaning the the, the, the the five levels of the soul which you keep on bringing up, right? That is five components of the godly soul. We're not getting into detail right now. We're just talking about in general. Yeah, yeah, okay, fine. Um, anyone else had a question before I continue? Yeah, yeah, sure. Not that I'm familiar with in Kabbalah. I know that in biology it works that way. In neurology, in Kabbalah, and not that I'm familiar with. Not that I'm familiar with. Yeah, it could be, it could be. 
um, there is in halacha, there is one distinction of a 20 year old. And it's, it's in, 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 in terms of reward and punishment, until, until a person is 20 years old, they're not fully responsible. They're fully responsible for their actions. They don't get necessarily the punishment that comes along with those actions until 20. So that's an indication that 20 years old is a cutoff time. But in terms of investment of the soul, I'm not familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's continue. So now, as a background to this, the best thing I can do for you is, is actually take you back to the creation of the world. We'll look inside the Chomish. I'm going to indicate to you some words that if you're learning Parshas Barashas, if you're learning the first part of the Chomish and the creation of the world, may have passed by you and you, not, you may have not seen um, any depths of these words, I'm going to point out to you where Kabbalah actually lays a lot of significance to these words, which are going to play out in today's class. So, firstly, if you can turn to page, well, the truth is, to the beginning of the Chomish, the beginning of the Chomish, page, yeah, page four, very good. Rex the sushi? <laughs> page four. Um, verse three, as as an example, Vayomer Elokim Hi Or Vayi Or, very famous passage. Hashem said there should be light, and there was light. If you look at verse um, six, Vayomer Elokim, and Hashem said there should be a heavens, and there was a heavens, right? Um, if you turn the page, verse uh, 9, um, On the third day, Hashem said that the waters should separate, and the waters separate, and we had dry land. Um, I'll also show you one more example. In verse uh, 14, this is on page 6, Hashem said there should be celestial beings, and there were the sun, the moon, and, um, and, uh, and the stars, and all the celestial beings up in heaven. Again, what do you see? What's the commonality between all these things? Again and again and again, in fact, 10 times throughout the first chapter of Barashas, you have the word Vayomer, which means Hashem says, okay, this is not by chance. The fact that we, we, we use the analogy of speech by the creation has very, very strong significance in Kabbalah to the creation, the very fact of using the analogy of speech. Okay. Now, let me draw your attention to verse 26. Okay. Vayomer Elohim, Hashem said, Nasa Adam Bitsalmenu Kidmuseinu. Hashem is talking to the angels. And he has this idea, he wants to create the human being. And the human being is obviously very unique. As Hashem tells the angels, I want to create a being, a Adam, a human, like our likeness and our... Anyone know the translation? Our image and our likeness. Yeah, is that the way it is? Our image and our likeness. That's what it says over there? No, but the, the, the two, uh, the two, um, why did, why did he say our? He's comparing angels to himself? Yeah, it's a very good question. Give me a second. Let me just, where are we? 26. 
um, our likeness. Okay? So Hashem is telling the, telling the angels, let us create man like our image and our likeness. Now why Hashem says our is actually a good question. And the simple answer, which I'll give now, not to delve too much, is Hashem was actually being very humble. Very, very humble, as if to include the angels in this process, even though we obviously didn't need the angels in this process. But the angels also have, to a certain degree, a bit, also like Hashem's image and Hashem's likeness, but nowhere near like a human being, as we're going to describe. But now, there's two, two terms used over here. Selem and Dmus. Okay? Selem and Dmus. I want you to just keep that in mind, that Hashem says, I'm creating man without, with my image, and my likeness. Now, I want to draw your attention to the next chapter. If you turn to page, turn to page 12. After the story of the creation of the world, in the second chapter of Bereshus, the second chapter starts to flesh out the story in more detail. The first chapter was just an overview. Second chapter is more detailed. And look at the description of how the human being was created. Very unique. Very different than any other creature in the universe. Look at verse 7. Hashem formed the man from dust of the earth. And then it says, And he blew into his, face, into his nostrils, into his face, into the holes of his face. A living soul. And the man awoke. Okay, why is this unique? Because every other creature, if you notice, in the creation of the world, was created as a, as a, as a, as a done unit. Right? Was Hashem said, it was created. Only the human being, that we have two stages. Hashem first forms its body, and then Hashem gives it a soul. Now, as we described extensively in the background to the Tanya, this is very significant. Why? Because the purpose of creation is that we should bring the fusion of the opposites, should bring the fusion of heaven and earth together, is that you should, as the Chumash itself says, if you want to turn back, it says, when Hashem, um, um, in, in, uh, in, uh, in the first um, chapter, what does Hashem say? Hashem says He, he made the man to, and put them in the garden, in order to guard it, in order to work it. In other words, the human being has this unique mission to do something in this world, to manipulate the world, to change something here. Hashem gave us that mission to fuse the two opposites. Now, if the man's purpose is to fuse the two opposites as we described extensively, then he himself has to be a being that's fused of two opposites. On one hand, he has to have a very corporal reality, like any other item in this universe, like any other creature. On the other hand, he has to have a godly reality. Okay? Now, I want to draw your attention to the terminology used here. What does it say? Vayipach ba'apav. He blew into him. There's three ways you would use breath of your mouth. One is breathing, which is constant, right? It doesn't take too much energy. In fact, you breathe constantly. It doesn't stop. Then there's speaking. If you notice, someone could speak. Some people could speak for a very long time, right? Some people a little less, but speaking is something you could constantly do, constantly do, constantly do. Every once in a while, you take a little bit of a breath. But if I ask you to blow, please blow, you know, blow a balloon. You get out of breath very quickly, right? Because when you breathe, 
the, the amount of ear going in and out of, of your respiratory um, organs is very, very minute. And when you're talking, it's a little more, but also very small. When you're blowing, you take all of the wind in you and you blow it out. So by the other creatures, what does it say? Hashem spoke. And by Adam, his, his soul, it says Hashem blew. Now, Hashem doesn't speak, Hashem doesn't blow, right? Hashem is unlimited, it doesn't have a body or it doesn't have the tendencies of a body. But everything written in the creation story is an analogy in order to tell us something, or to teach us something. That Adam's soul, and therefore the soul of every single human being afterwards, was created very differently than every other creation. While every other creation comes from a very, very surface level of Hashem, only from speaking very surface, only the soul, the godly soul of Adam, only the soul comes from the most innermost essence of Hashem. If you look in text 2, as I have in the sheet, as it says in the Zayar, the quintessential book of Kabbalah, the Zayar explains this verse, man denafach, a person who blows, he blows from his innermost self. Pirush meaning, from his innermost being, from his innermost innermost vitality. When a person blows, he gives all that he got. It comes from deep, deep within. So now, you could understand there's an indication here. It's just an indication. I'll go and explain soon. But the indication is, is that every other creature comes from the speaking of Hashem. That's very, very service, right? Very, as, as uh, the words of Tanya is, chitzonias, which means external. But the godly soul comes from the innermost part of Hashem. And now it makes a little sense when we say that the godly soul is a piece of Hashem. Mamish! Actually, he uses the word mamish. In Hebrew, means literally. It's a piece of Hashem. Every other creation also stems from Hashem's energy. Right? There's nothing here that doesn't come from Hashem. But you're not going to say that it's a piece of Hashem, Mamish. The godly soul, you have a piece of God within you. And that's literal. And that's literal. And we see that in the story. Now, when Hashem creates Adam, he uses the term Tzalmenu Kitmuseinu. Like my image and my likeness. Tzalmenu Kitmuseinu, image and a likeness, we're going to get to in the other two chapters. As Hasidus explains, Tzalem is the build of a person. Our build which we're going to get to in the next chapter, is very much like Hashem's build. And our demus means our behaviors. The way a human being has the capacity to behave is very similar also to Hashem. So we mirror Hashem's image. We mirror. But the indication that the essence of the soul comes is an actual piece of Hashem, not just a mirror, not just a likeness, it's an actual piece of Hashem, comes from the verse in the second chapter, Ve'yipach Hashem blue. Okay. So now, I'll, now with that background, with that background, I can get to the heart of this chapter. The heart of this chapter is coming to tell us that the best way to explain the essence of the soul that we each contain is to explain it in a filial manner. Not because the relationship between a son and a father, or a daughter and a mother, or, or a child and a parent, more accurately, is the best analogy, but it's actually the best description. 
Okay? And this description, the way it works in physical biology, will actually give us a description of the way it works in the spiritual biology. Okay? We know, and this is uh, clearly in Kabbalah, that a child takes obviously two partners to make a child. In fact, actually three partners, right? The Hashem. But the physical, the physical part of a child takes two partners. The man contributes the seed. The woman it contributes the, 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 the building of the child in nine months, right? So I, I, I tried to research this, um, how it works in science, but definitely and Tanya describes it this way, that the seed that creates the child stems from the brain of the father actually stems from the brain. The, 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 first, the, fir the first source of this physical seed actually stems from the energy within the brain of the father. Okay? And then in the mother, it, it, uh, it develops, and then a child is born. So this biological narrative actually gives us a little bit of an explanation to how it works with the soul as well. Also the soul is a piece of Hashem. Also the soul is sourced in Hashem. But just like a child is sourced in his parents, literally, literally is created by his parents, but yet when it's born, it has that independence. And as it grows up, it gets more independent and more independent and more independent. The same is true with a soul. A soul is a piece of Hashem. It's placed into a body and it's given that independence. And as, as we described, it matures, the soul gets more independent and more and more detached. When a person passes away, the soul then goes back to its source. But in this world, it has that independence. But yet, yet, it's still, in essence, in essence, the father. The son is, has literally the DNA, the essence of the father. Going back to the story, right? What's closer to a person? Let me ask you this. What's closer to a person? His thoughts or his child? His thoughts or his child? So on one, on one hand, his thoughts. Right? Because it's part of you. Your child is a separate entity. On the other hand, your thoughts are just an expression of you. Your child is your real essence. Your child is an actual, actual comes from your, your essence. And the same thing is with Hashem. If you say, what's, what's closer to Hashem? The Jewish people, the Torah. This is actually a great, this is actually a great big discussion in Kabbalah. What's closer to Hashem? They're both coming from Hashem. The Torah is Hashem's wisdom. You can't compare. The Jewish people, the Jewish soul is Hashem's child. It's the essence of Hashem, not just the wisdom of Hashem. Okay? But this, this, the, this narrative, this biological narrative in, in, in the physical realm also indicates something else. So number one, we see that it's the essence. Our soul is the essence of Hashem. It comes from the essence of Hashem. It's a piece of Hashem. But number two, what happens after it leaves the father, it goes into the mother, and there's a nine months of, of building. Now what happens to this small little essence? This small little piece of essence. Then for nine months develops into a brain on its own right. It becomes its own brain. It came from the father's brain, but it becomes its own brain. Arms, legs, toes, fingernails, toenails, right? The entire build of a person is then built out of this. And can you compare a person's heart to a person's toenail? No. Every single piece of the body comes from this essence, yet when it push comes to shove, when it actually develops, there's different organs and different elements and different bones and different sinews and different, right? That come out of this and there starts to become a hierarchy. 
right? There's the brain, the heart, the internal organs, then you have the fingers, you have the, you have the, the nails, you have the hair, which is very external. So this gives us another indication, another, another thing to learn out to the spiritual biology, that when the souls come down to the body, as the souls manifest into bodies, although in essence, they are all part of the general essence of Hashem, when it comes down here, there's still a hierarchy. Some souls are considered to be brain souls. Some souls are considered to be heart souls. Some souls are considered to be toenail souls. So, so in practicality, when it comes down to it, every generation, and this, this, this works in, inside every generation and also in the entire makeup of the history of the Jewish people. So in general, we have generations which are much more loftier souls that by nature, they are loftier souls. They are considered to be more like, like brain souls. Just like, in a, just like in a body, you have a hierarchy. So too, in, in generations, some generations have more loftier souls. Uh, some generations, like ours, for example, have much less loftier souls. And then in each generation also, you have some people who by nature are loftier, some people by nature less so. Less so. And that is just the fact. And therefore... They both could be true. These two facts can both live together. On one hand, in the essence, every single soul of the Jewish people is exactly the same because we all come from the same father. We all come from the same essence. But in practicality, as it, as it comes out in this physical world, there might not be, there may be a bit of an imbalance. A little bit of imagery I could give you is just imagine a pipeline. A pipeline going from heaven, from Hashem, all the way down to earth. And along the pipeline, there's holes. Right? If you ever notice like a pipe with water coming through, and it's a very old pipe, so you have these holes. The water is still going through, but, but some water exits prematurely. Okay, So just imagine this pipeline going through the spiritual realms. Going through the spiritual realms. So every soul is going through this pipeline. Now, some souls are so lofty that they pop out of the pipeline. They pop out of the pipeline early. I'll give you an example. For example, Moshe Rabbeinu, he's known to be one of the loft, loftiest of souls. So you can imagine he comes down to this earth. He was a human being, right? He was a physical human being. But his soul was so lofty that it didn't go through the entire pipeline in order to get more and more and more thick and more and more and more um, coarse, right? It popped out on a very lofty level. Other souls, they go all through the pipeline all the way. They come out very coarse at the, at, at the end. Okay, actually, this tells us a very interesting thing. Moshe Rabbeinu, this reflected in nature, reflected in the physical um, pregnancy of Moshe's mother. Moshe Rabbeinu, his mother had a pregnancy of six months. Eliyahu Hanavi, we're told, just giving you an example, his mother had a pregnancy of 12 months, which is abnormal, completely abnormal. Both, both are completely abnormal. But Moshe Rabbeinu, according to Kabbalah, his soul is of a loftier, a loftier space than Eliyahu and Navi. They're both prophets, but one of them had a loftier soul, one of them had a lower soul, and Kabbalah actually compares the two, and their life stories are compared, and to show how, how this soul had this type of mission, Eliyahu and Navi still had that type of mission, but I'm just giving you an example of actually, in the physical world, it's actually reflected in their pregnancies. Okay, but that's just a visual to understand how the souls all come from the same source. But some of them, when they come down here, some of them end up being loftier, some of them end up being less so.
Hanya actually says, Hanya actually says that this is the reason why a person should really be careful in their marriage, in their union, to have holy thoughts. The reason is because every soul that comes down to any child, they're all the same, they're all in essence. But the question is, it's color, it's flavor that it's going to come down into the body, right? Is it going to be a little coarse, a little less coarse? In essence, they're the same, but there is an actual hierarchy at the end of the day, and that is very much dependent on how the parents behave, on how the parents use, how the parents approach their union together in a holy manner or unholy manner. That's kind of actually says that. But I want to get to the third element. What's the third element? The third element is, is that when a child is born, right? Not just when the father and mother. What happens when the child is born? So we notice something. That the child has, obviously, a hierarchy, has a body. Like every person has a body. Again, mind, the heart, internal organs. Then you have all the way down to the lowest of low, which is the toenails, right? Which you could cut off and you won't get hurt because it's meant to get cut off. It's very low. Every single, single last aspect of the body draws its energy from the brain. So the child as a whole comes originally from the brain of the father. But even when it's born and it's an independent being, still so, every part of its body draws energy from the brain. The brain dictates how the body should move and operate. And it also, it, it draws, it's, it, this works obviously in the physical realm, also in the spiritual realm. The head is the top of the body, the head, top of the hierarchy. It vitalizes the body, the head and the heart, but mostly, mostly the head. So now, what, the, what is the parallel in the spiritual realm, in the souls? The parallel is, is that once the souls are already down here, and there's different types of souls, there are some souls in every generation that are called the brain, the brain souls. They're all the loftiest souls. And just like in a person, an independent being, once he's born, every single element of the body draws its energy and draws its vitality from the brain, so too, every soul in the generation draws its spiritual vitality and its spiritual nourishment from the brain souls in that generation. Every generation has many different types of souls, right? At the end of the day, as they fall down, as they fall into bodies, they are on, of different levels. Now, every generation has a few souls, a few people, who are, are encased in them are head souls, brain souls, right? The loftiest of the loftiest. Now, just like in a person, every single element of his body draws nourishment from the brain, so too in, in a generation, if you look at it generationally, every single soul takes nourish, nourishment from these individuals, okay? Look inside in the Tanya, read it inside, and then I'll explain. The last, the last uh, set of texts. Because the nourishment and the life of the soul and the spirit and the neshama of even the lowest of people comes from the souls and the spirits from the righteous people from the scholars the heads of the Jewish people in their generation. The heads of the Jewish people? What's this terminology, the heads of the Jewish people? Do you know what a Rebbe is? Rebbe? Rebbe is actually an acronym. Rebbe is Reish, Bez, Yud. I'm telling you a concept now, you can write down a concept. Reish, Bez, Yud. 
makes the word Rebbe. You know why a Rebbe is called a Rebbe? Because it's an acronym for Rosh B'nai Yisrael. Rosh B'nai Yisrael, which means the head of the Jewish people. Why do we use the terminology head? The reason is because these people are literally like the head. In every generation, you have souls which are the head souls, which give vitality to the other souls. If so, let's continue in the text. If so, now we can understand the sayings of our sages in the Talmud, on the verse which we find in Dvarim. The verse tells us, you have a commandment, this is an actual mitzvah, to cleave Tashem, to cleave Tashem. There's a mitzvah to cleave Tashem. What does it mean to cleave Tashem? How can you cleave Tashem? How can you have a mitzvah to cleave Tashem? What does that mean? It means, Shekol Hadavik Betamidi Chachamim, as the Talmud actually tells us. What does the Talmud say? How do you cleave Tashem? If you cleave to a Torah scholar, Maila Olava Kosuv, then the Torah considers it, as if you cleave Tashem. Literally. Why? Because if these souls are the brain souls or the head souls, they are of the loftiest of kind. They are the most connected to the source. Right? They didn't go through the pipeline. So they're most connected to the source in, in a revealed sense. They don't have any coarseness around them. So if you cling to them, then you'll be cleaving to Hashem in, its most, in, 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 in the most natural way, in the best way possible. You want to. There's actually a mitzvah to find the Torah scholar, to find the Rebbe, and to cleave to him. What does that mean? Or to her? What does that mean? To connect. To connect. Now, I want to dwell on this topic a bit, because in Chassidus, this becomes, it's in the second chapter of Tanya, and this becomes a fundamental life aspect of Chassidim. A fundamental life aspect is that you identify a Rebbe for yourself, and you connect to the Rebbe, whether that means asking advice, whether that means learning his Torah, whether that means learning his teachings, whether that means following his instructions, whatever it may be, you should actually cleave to him, and that's an actual mitzvah. And the mitzvah is not to cleave to the, to the, to the Torah scholar, not to cleave to the Rebbe. The mitzvah is to cleave to Hashem. The way we do that is to the Rebbe. Okay? A fascinating thing. People actually, when the Hasidic movement actually started, and this whole idea of having a Rebbe became popular, so people actually were very um, concerned. They said, every Jew has a connection to Hashem directly. All of a sudden, you're bringing an inter intermediary over here, right? I can connect to Hashem on myself. Why do I have to have a Rebbe? But can you imagine that since the start of the Hasidic movement, and they introduced this concept of a Rebbe, the belief in Hashem and the tangibility of Hashem, the consciousness of Hashem has only increased. Why? Because a Rebbe, as it's explained in the Hasidic, a true Rebbe, is not an intermediary that blocks, but it's an intermediary that connects. It makes it accessible. So you can imagine it not like a blockage in the pipe, but like a faucet, right? A faucet, you say, uh, you know, I have this connection point, but he's a faucet, he opens up, right? And that, that's, a, that's the imagery you should have in mind. I'll just, just, just to end off with the story, Rabbi Yol Khan, who was in our generation, just recently passed away from the foremost scholars in Hasidic thought of our time actually mentions a story. He says that in the year before the Rebbe accepted upon himself to, be, to become a Rebbe, which is in 1950, his he was living in New York. 
and his father lived in Israel. And his father sent him a letter. He reads the letter and it says, Yael, my son, our relative, whose name was Yitzchak, has gone off the path of Torah. Is there anything, any idea you have? Maybe you could speak to the Rebbe. The Rebbe, he wasn't even Rebbe yet. Maybe you could speak to him for some advice of how to bring back our relative into the fold. Okay? So Rabbi Yael says that he went to the Rebbe and he told him about his relative. And then the Rebbe said, when was he born? So Rabbi Yael was trying to calculate when, what this guy's age is. And then the Rebbe said, I'll explain to you why I'm asking. Because I want to know, was he in Israel at the time when my father-in-law, who had just recently passed away with the Rebbe's father-in-law, who was the sixth Chabad Rebbe, when he was visiting Israel, he had visited Israel, he wants to know if he was alive at that time. Shorabiel says, yes, my relative was alive at that time, and I actually know for a fact that he met him, that he had met the previous Rebbe. So the Rebbe became relaxed. He says, if your relative saw the Rebbe, I have hope for him. Don't worry, he's going to come back. Because just having that interaction already makes the whole difference. Okay, another story. There's a big chassid who we have, we have um, um, nu numerous stories of, of, of him. He actually lived in Kfarqabad in Israel in his later years. And my father, who, who, was, uh, who was born in Kfarqabad, um, um, remembers, remembers this chassid. His name is Reb Mendel Futafas. Okay, Reb Mendel Futafas was a chassid who spent years, decades, decades in the Russian gulag because he was uh, a person who dedicated his life to spreading Torah, to saving Jewish people, helping them escape from Soviet Union. And they caught him and they put him away for decades. And he's a person who learned out from every single encounter, right? Every single thing that happened to him, he was able to learn out something positive. Now he says like this, there was one time he had a very, very low moment. Very low moment. And he felt like he can't do it anymore. He felt like he's, he's, he, 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 they, they, he was literally in this concentration camp for so long. No contact with his family. No contact with other Jews. It was so hard to keep even the most basic mitzvahs, which he kept. He kept every single Shabbos through 20 years. But it was so hard. He felt like he needs to have a communication with the Rebbe. His source is nourishment. But how can he have a communication? Right? He's out somewhere in Siberia, and he has no there's, no, there's, there's no mail. They don't let him have any communication, even to his family. There's no way he's going to have a communication to the Rebbe. And I want to tell you even further, before I continue the story, that Remendel Futafas never met the Rebbe yet, because the Rebbe became Rebbe when, when the, Rebbe, the Rebbe had left Russia and became Rebbe in America. Remendel Futafas was still in the Soviet Union. He never met the Rebbe yet. He just knew there was a Rebbe. And he thought, if I could just connect somehow, this Rebbe, it would give me strength. And then he thought to himself, if a Rebbe is a real tzaddik, a real righteous person, then does it make a difference if I write an actual letter or if I just imagine myself writing a letter? Maybe the Rebbe is so great he could even read my spiritual letter. So he went to the corner and he thought he's writing a letter to the Rebbe and he actually dictated in his mind what he would have written if he had some paper and he was at had the ability to actually send it. And he continued and he, he got some strength from that. When he left, about seven, eight years later, he managed to escape. After they let him go, he left the Soviet Union. He went to England where his family was waiting for him. 20 years didn't see his family. When he got there, they said, Mendel, you should just know, after obviously the re-encounter, one of the things they told him, they said that some random day, some random day about eight years ago, 
or whatever it was, we got a letter from the Rebbe in New York addressed to you, but we couldn't give it to you, obviously, so we, so we, uh, we put it aside. And they gave it to him, and he opened the letter, and the Rebbe says, I received your letter, and he's answering the letter. Because in every generation, you have, uh, 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 you have these souls, which are like the brain souls, that just like in a child, our entire body gets nourishment, the connection, energy from the brain, so too, every single person in this generation gets his spiritual nourishment from, from the brain. And that's why it is so important to connect to the Rebbe, to, to have a connection somehow. And the Rebbe responds in kind because just like, he's, just like he's the brain. So with that, I want to just go to the life part of this, uh, this class. where We learn out a, um, some elements of these ideas in our relationship with Hashem, in our relationship with others, and in our, our relationship with ourselves. So firstly, in our relationship with Hashem, what I learn out mostly is how important it is to strengthen our connection to, to a Rebbe. And it's in a relationship with Hashem, you have to understand, connecting yourself to a Rebbe according to the Talmud, according to what the sages say, is not connecting yourself to a Rebbe because it's a good thing. But it's one of the ways we connect ourselves with Hashem, is connecting ourselves with a person who can who can embody, in its most loftiest possible way, Hashem's presence in this world. So strengthening our connection to the Rebbe is strengthening our relationship with Hashem. And our relationship with others, what I learn out is that we are all part of one body. Right? What, basically what the Tanya is telling us, we're all part of one body. This is actually sourced from the Talmud Yerushalmi, in the Jerusalem Talmud, which says that all Jewish people, in fact all humankind, are like one body. Right? So you can imagine, imagine you're peeling the vegetables, and your right hand by mistake, cuts your left hand, right? Is your left hand going to, hey, you cut me, I'm going to cut you back? Obviously not, right? If you feel like you're one, part of one body, even if someone steps on your toes, even if someone slights you a little bit, right? You realize it's all, we're all part of one body. If, if that person hurt me, they hurt themselves more than anything else, okay? That recognition is definitely something we can learn out. And in relationship with ourselves, we should just always constantly try to meditate on this simple fact. That no matter what our soul looks like, no matter what our life looks like, no matter where we're holding, no matter, at the end of the day, in its true essence, deep down, in its essence, our soul is a piece of Hashem. Okay? And that, and that, that remains true no matter where you're holding, no matter what's happening. The question is... Are you going to identify with that or are you going to identify with the circumstance around you? And for me, this is the biggest lesson that this parak, this chapter is teaching. And in fact, what all of Chassidus is teaching is that we are used to identifying and, 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 and absorbing the circumstance around us. We should learn and train ourselves to have this meditation at any moment that we could to identify and realize that at the end of the day, we are a piece of Hashem. Peace of Hashem can never get tarnished, can never get broken. Peace of Hashem endures and is pure always.